Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. My name is Eric Trexler. I am the host of the show, but today I am joined by a very special temporary guest co-host, and his name is Greg Knuckles. Greg, how are you doing? Doing well. How are you? I am doing just fine, and I'd like to kick off the show here by thanking everyone who supported the mass Black Friday sale. Uh, last time we had a podcast episode, we were talking about that sale. Um, people came through. Uh, we feel the support. We appreciate the support. And we'd like to welcome a lot of new subscribers to the mass community. Uh, because of the generosity of all that support, we are now in a position with, with mass. We're able to uh, make a $10,000 donation to charity. And that charity uh, basically supports uh, food banks throughout the United States. So a lot of good work being done to reduce hunger around the holiday season here. So thanks so much for your support. Um, now, if you missed out on that sale and you're interested in finding other ways to support the show or to support the Stronger by Science universe, of course, you could always go to BulkSupplements.com and use the discount code SBSPOD for a 5% discount. And of course, you could also download the Macro Factor Diet app just in time for your New Year's resolutions. Whether you're gaining, uh, planning to gain or lose or maintain weight in a more informed way, uh, Macro Factor should come in handy. A lot of great analytics there. Um, now, along those lines, you're probably going to hear a bunch of fit pros bashing New Year's resolutions uh, in the next like two weeks. I'm against that. Like, you know, it's not that everyone needs a New Year's resolution, but you're going to hear a lot of the lines that like, oh, if, if you don't care enough to have started yesterday, like you're a loser and it's not going to work. Like that's not an evidence-based perspective. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I always get a kick out of people who are evidence-based, except when they're just saying stuff they feel like saying. Yeah. My, my, my other favorite one that people will throw out there is there's a statistic that's not real at all that I see repeated a thousand times. It's like 99% of new year's resolutions fail. And I think, I think the evidence, I didn't look this up before the show, but it's like, it's a large number, but not like near universality. I think something in the neighborhood of like 80% of new year's resolutions fail, but like, I don't know, man, one in five is still kind of a lot. Yeah. I think, when people get really negative about resolutions there, I assume that they're kind of riffing on some research about temporal landmarks. So a lot of people get more motivated to accomplish a goal around some kind of temporal landmark in the calendar, whether it's a birthday, the start of a new week, the start of a new month, the start of a new year. And the research would indicate that, uh, there's a bit of a fallacy built into that that's kind of baked into our psychology. Sometimes when we set these temporal landmarks and we couple a goal with it, there's a bit of uh, an illogical assumption. The me that exists in 2022 is completely different and better than the me that exists now. Mm -hmm. uh, th there's some evidence saying that that kind of fuels some of these temporally linked goals. And of course, simply having a temporal landmark is not predictive of successful behavior change. So uh, simply setting a New Year's resolution, of course, is not fully sufficient for guaranteeing success. We all intuitively know that. But the temporal landmarks can be a nice little boost for motivation. So if you couple that with really good goal-setting strategies, there's no reason that you can't be successful with a really nice New Year's resolution. So that's a bit of a tangent. But let's get back on track here. 
road to the stage how's it going greg uh i mean it's it's not going i suppose i i think i mentioned on the last podcast um my my goals shifted around the holiday season between birthday and uh thanksgiving and christmas you know a lot of good food to be consumed around this time of the year um and I decided instead of white knuckling it and continuing to just try to lose weight through the holiday season, uh, I was going to intentionally be at maintenance for about a month. Uh, and so, yeah, we're smack dab in the middle of that month and uh, pit stops going well. I am at maintenance still below 240 as I intended to be. Um, so, yeah, I, I would say that there is a pit stop on the road to the stage. And the pit stop is uh, is going about the way I expected it to. Good stuff. Um, that was the road to Athens. I'm also at, uh, unfortunately, a bit of a pit stop. Not one that was planned like yours. Um, you know, a couple weeks ago, I had a nice little string of workouts put together. Had a, a really nice 12-mile run and then like a 17-mile walk and jog that was on... Uh, a trail system with a lot of root systems and um, a lot of stuff to avoid while running. Uh, then I ran into an injury. Uh, could have just been the sheer mileage, could have been the uneven surfaces and the root systems I was trying to navigate, but had a little tweak of my popliteus muscle. Uh, if you've never heard of that, it's for a reason. It's <laughs> literally useless and stupid. But the popliteus muscle is this little like triangular shaped muscle in the back of your knee that uh is stupid as i said and doesn't do anything particularly important until you need it and when it starts hurting then you start to recognize what it actually does um but anyway i started to notice some of this pain i'm not certain if it's acute or chronic in nature could have been an overuse type thing could have been an acute strain um, i was trying to think back did i have any particular strides where I landed with my knee in flexion and maybe some excessive pronation. Turns out it was like half the steps I took on that 17 mile journey. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. It could have been one of those steps or it could have been all the steps. I can't really say for sure, but I'm really proud of myself in this case for identifying it early and really just slamming the brakes on instead of training through it, which I typically would. Mm -hmm. uh, I was really stoked about having the patience to say, okay, I'm going to take a couple weeks off, do some other types of training, lift weights once in a while. And, uh, you know, I, I should be back to running within the next few days. And I think that's going to make, uh, it's going to bring a lot of clarity in terms of if it was acute or chronic. And if this is going to be something that is in my rear view mirror, or if it will continue to plague me throughout the entirety of this process. So certainly hoping for the best there. And this was a great situation where simply being absurdly busy helps you stay patient. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. like uh, we're around the time of the the month where, you know, of course, macro factor stuff is always kind of in full swing. Uh, and then the the calendar for mass, the research review is kind of done in chunks throughout the month. The last couple of weeks were super busy. Uh, so it was very easy to have the patience to say that I'm not going to run today because even if I wanted to, I'm not sure how I would. Yeah. But uh, okay, cool. Moving on. Feats of strength. What do you got? Uh, well, first off, to wrap up the road to Athens, I, I, and I'm sure all of the listeners are wishing you a speedy recovery. Thank you. Uh, as far as feats of strength go, um, let's see. We got uh, three training lifts and one uh, very impressive competition lift to discuss. 
So uh, first two training lifts from, uh, I guess I can't really call him a friend of the show because he's never been on, but uh, friend of the show in spirit due to how often he comes up in the Feats of Strength segment, John Hack. Uh, recently deadlifted 900 or like 903 uh, and benched 600 in training for the first time. Um, I believe he's still planning on competing at 220. I mean, those are ridiculous lifts uh, regardless of weight class, but uh, yeah, just, just blazing new trails. Doesn't make sense, but uh, he is incredibly strong and kudos to him on those milestones. I do, by the way, consider him a friend of the show because he has mentioned that he has at least on one occasion listened to the show. So that makes him a friend that is, uh, along that with is correct, along with everyone that's currently listening. Yes. Um, let's see. Uh, Emil Lundgren, who is a junior IPF lifter. Uh, he's a 74 kilo lifter uh, and at a body weight of 72 kilos in the gym or 159 pounds, he benched 200 kilos or 441 pounds. And uh, he's a he's a teen lifter. He's 18 years old. Makes no fucking sense. Very impressive. Uh, you should check that lift out. Uh, there aren't currently links in the outlines, but I'll I'll get those to you, Trex. Uh, so yeah, check out the lift. Very strong, very impressive. Uh, and then finally, the competition lift. Uh, Bulgarian weightlifter Carlos Nasser, at the ripe young age of 17, uh, broke the senior world record in the 81 kilo men's class. He clean and jerked 208 kilos, which, uh, again, that's a that's an enormous lift for anyone. But uh, coming from a teenager, uh, obviously that broke the junior world record as well. <laughs> um, but yeah. Uh, very strong, incredibly impressive. And honestly, it looked like he had a little bit more in the tank too. Uh, the clean looked easy. Uh, the jerk was never in doubt. So, um, I mean the, the numbers he's putting up at 17, I, I could see him just owning that class for the next decade plus. Good stuff. Yes, sir. A lot of strong people, uh, which is always good to see. All right, um, moving on. We've got some excellent segments prepared for today's show. The first one, I'm revisiting a segment that I, I called contextualized clarifications. And the idea is, uh, you know, adding a little bit of context to topics that have been covered previously, particularly when they seem to be uh, potentially being misapplied a little bit. Um, so the thing I want to talk about today is reverse dieting. Um, now reverse dieting is not something that I've ever pushed super hard as a universal dieting strategy, but I've always left a little bit of wiggle room for it, uh, in some key scenarios. And most commonly when I've talked about reverse dieting in the past, it's been in a particular context, which is after a physique focused competition. So you get done with, uh, you know, a bodybuilding prep, for example, you are shredded, hopefully, uh, so shredded that your blood panel indicates you're shredded, right? Like we're, <laughs> we're talking about dieting to a point that your doctor knows you were dieting before they even see your physique, mm -hmm. right? So we have side effects related to this dieting because it is so severe in nature. And when you're at the end of a show, you have some of these symptoms that are lingering most likely. Um, 
And you also are in an interesting situation where you say, listen, in six or seven months from now, I'm probably going to be 40 pounds heavier than I am today. And so then the question is, should you try to manage that trajectory? And if so, how? And so that's where reverse dieting has come into play in some of my previous work. I, I mentioned it in the metabolic adaptation manual, which I'll link in the show notes. Um, but in that context, I was like, I'm not really that fond of super strict reverse diets. I'm more in the recovery diet kind of camp. Um, although in the article, I talked about how it's kind of a false dichotomy. Really, these are just strategies of I'm about to gain a bunch of weight. How should I thoughtfully manage that trajectory based on my current circumstances and my goals for the future? Do you want to just real quick operationally define reverse diet versus recovery diet? Absolutely. So like I said, uh, we're, we're talking about in this context, gaining weight after a diet. So we're talking about weight regain and a popular approach to reverse dieting is to go extremely slow with caloric increases. So let's say you get to the end of your bodybuilding prep, you go, uh, you know, you're, you're now a, a two time, uh, two different sport professional athlete. Uh, and now you're like, okay, what do I do with weight regain and adding some calories back into my super low calorie diet? Reverse dieting in its more popular forms is an extremely slow process of just adding a little bit of carbohydrate here, a little bit of fat there and meticulously increasing calories. Um, and in some cases, you know, I've, I've heard of people trying to do this in a way that is almost weight stable where they're like, I wonder if I can stay shredded forever, but just kind of creep my calories up and get to a spot where I'm still shredded, but instead of eating 1,500 calories a day, I'm eating 2,300 calories a day or 2,600 calories a day. So in the most extreme form, we're talking about these tiny incremental changes in caloric intake. And in some cases, people are unknowingly or I guess unintentionally spending a few weeks still in a deficit. And in some cases, several weeks still in a caloric deficit because they're not increasing their calories quickly enough. So a reverse diet is like this, in most cases, a very extreme process of trying to meticulously make these very tiny changes in caloric intake and bumping it up. Uh, so usually there's going to be some weight gain associated with that. But in, in many cases, it's very minimal weight gain. It's, it's, you know, ranging from weight stability to just a very slow and slight magnitude of weight gain. Reverse, or I'm sorry, recovery dieting to my, to the best of my knowledge was popularized by the, the folks over at 3d muscle journey. So like Helms and Jeff Alberts, uh, and the whole gang over there. And the idea with recovery diet, I believe it was kind of a response to reverse dieting and the way it was being implemented. And they're like, dude, your competition was five weeks ago. You're still in the deficit, you know, or yeah. your competition was five weeks ago and you are still very far away from the productive phase of your off season. I mean, you're not recovering from your show because mm -hmm. you're keeping your calories so low. So the idea, as I understand it with the recovery diet is that it, it started out by immediately making a relatively big jump to make sure that you were in neutral, to positive energy balance. So certainly not staying in a deficit, making bigger jumps early on 
and facilitating weight regain, but doing it in a controlled manner. So instead, like I said, in six months, I'm going to be 40 pounds heavier. That's fine. But that doesn't mean you have to go all 40 pounds the first month and then plateau for five, right? You, you could have a nice gradual, not necessarily linear, but gradual and controlled phase of weight regain. And from my perspective, that's where, uh, that, that's what recovery diets aim to do. And the idea is that by being a little more aggressive on the front end, you can facilitate that recovery. So maybe three months or four months after the end of your diet, your doctor can no longer tell based on your blood work that you've been dieting so hard. Yeah. So the idea is facilitating that recovery a little bit more promptly and a little bit more proactively. So that sometimes people treat that as a dichotomy. In my article, I said, maybe not. Maybe it's just kind of a spectrum of approaches that range from trying to stay weight stable versus extremely rapid weight regain. And what we need to do is find a trajectory that basically fits your your current circumstances and your goals. So if you get to the end of a diet and you have no symptoms whatsoever, then yeah, maybe we don't need to be super aggressive at the beginning, right? Uh, you know, there's a lot of contextual factors to consider. Or if you're a, a super elite physique athlete and you're like, yeah, if no matter how I bulk this year, there's no way I'm gaining more than like a pound of muscle. Well, in that case, your best your best shot at improving show to show probably has more to do with managing your leanness throughout the course of your competitive like calendar year, right? So mm -hmm. you can set yourself up for a leaner appearance next season by being a little bit more focused on managing that weight regain, you know? So there's a lot of contextual factors that I go into in a lot of detail in that article. But one of the applications of reverse dieting, shifting back to reverse dieting exclusively, one of the applications that seems to be getting more and more popular that I'm hearing more and more about on social media is the idea that I'm going to use reverse dieting to set myself up for a more successful fat loss phase down the road. So before I cut, what I'm going to do is reverse diet and stay weight stable, but by slowly increasing my calories, I'm basically going to ramp up my metabolic rate. And I'm going to get my total daily energy expenditure elevated so that when I begin my fat loss phase, I'm going to be able to diet on higher calories. And that's going to continue to some extent throughout the diet. And it's going to be way cooler, higher calories, more food flexibility, less hunger, less hormonal stuff going on. Uh, that is the plan. That's the idea. And this is not a perspective that I've ever been super adamant about reinforcing and the more that I've looked into it critically, uh, the less justifiable it appears to be from my perspective. Um, and I, there was a paper that came out recently that I think highlights my skepticism about this particular application. And I think the best way to frame this skepticism is by looking at it through the prism of metabolic phenotypes. So briefly... Uh, the metabolic phenotypes, a lot of times it's treated as a dichotomy, but it's really kind of a spectrum where we've got people with more of a thrifty phenotype, and then we've got other people with more of a spendthrift phenotype. Thrifty individuals generally are considered resistant to weight loss. So what that means is in context of overfeeding, they tend to quite readily store additional fat mass. 
And in the context of underfeeding, they tend to resist fat loss through a number of metabolic adaptations that I've spent way too much of my life talking about. Someone with a spendthrift phenotype, in contrast, is the opposite. So they tend to be relatively resistant to weight gain. In context of overfeeding, uh, they simply resist gaining and, and storing more fat mass. A lot of times their energy expenditure will ramp up quite a bit during overfeeding. Uh, this is what, in many cases, leads to someone designating themselves as a hard gainer. This could be a contributing factor, although I think appetite regulation also has a huge impact on that. Mm -hmm. um, now, someone with a spendthrift phenotype, when they are put into a context of underfeeding, they actually don't have particularly robust metabolic adaptations to that underfeeding. So they struggle to gain weight intentionally, but when you tell them to do a fat loss diet, uh, the fat comes off uh, as you would typically expect without a whole lot of friction. So this is the idea of these phenotypes. In a recent paper by Hallstein and colleagues, um, kind of dug into uh, these, these phenotypes and how individuals with each uh, metabolic phenotype responded to different contexts of underfeeding, or in this case, complete fasting, which is the ultimate underfeeding, or acute overfeeding. And the paper yielded some really interesting findings. I think a lot of times people, when they think of a thrifty phenotype being resistant to weight loss, they kind of assume my metabolic rate, my total daily energy expenditure is just always going to be lower than someone who spend thrift. So uh, across the board, I will have lower energy expenditure. And that's why I am prone to fat gain and resistant to fat loss. These uh, study results did not reinforce that. Uh, the relationship between phenotype, metabolic phenotype, and energy expenditure is a little bit more complicated. So the people with a thrifty phenotype, they did have a large drop in total daily energy expenditure during over or during underfeeding. Uh, however, at neutral energy balance, when they compared the thrifty to the spendthrift individuals, the people with thriftier metabolic phenotypes actually had higher total daily energy expenditure at neutral energy balance. Um, and even with overfeeding, so the spendthrift individuals during overfeeding, the spendthrift people, as you would expect, had a larger adaptive increase in energy expenditure. Uh, they are typically more resistant to intentional weight gain and intentional fat gain. However, even with that added additional uh, adaptive increase in total daily energy expenditure, even in overfeeding, the thrifty individuals had non-significantly higher total daily energy expenditure. So when we look at these phenotypes, it's not as simple as these are the people with high energy expenditure and these are the people with low energy expenditure. It's how does your energy expenditure respond to fluctuations in energy intake and energy availability relative to your normal level at neutral energy balance. Now, the reason that I think this is informative for reverse dieting is because reverse dieting is, I would argue, for people who have thriftier metabolic phenotypes. These are the people who say, Generally speaking, I struggle with fat loss. Uh, I seem to have pretty notable adaptations to underfeeding that slow my fat loss down. Uh, so you could think of, you know, 
this idea of reverse dieting to set yourself up for a fat loss being really a tool that is for people with a thrifty phenotype because the people with a spendthrift phenotype they're fine. They're like, yeah, I, I start dieting. I lose fat. It's all good. Mm -hmm. I don't need to prime myself for this phase. Um, but the big, big problem there is that when we look at these individuals with the thriftier phenotypes who theoretically should stand to gain the most from this idea of ramping up your energy expenditure prior to a dieting phase, the problem is as we can see in these data, their issue is not having low energy expenditure before the diet at neutral energy balance. In fact, their energy expenditure is higher than, than similar people with the other phenotype. And regardless of how high their energy expenditure is at neutral energy balance, in this case, at the start of that diet, the problem is what happens when energy goes down. When energy intake drops, and they have reduced energy availability, these individuals have an adaptive response where total daily energy expenditure uh, declines. And importantly, I have not seen any evidence to suggest that doing any kind of reverse dieting strategy beforehand would offset that in any way. There's really no evidence to suggest that if you're a person with a thrifty phenotype who experiences, experiences these drops in energy expenditure during dieting, we have no reason to believe that doing anything to your energy expenditure at neutral energy balance or positive energy balance is going to do something that you can carry with you through the dieting phase. So based on, you know, looking through this prism of metabolic phenotypes, if you were to say, okay, who should be doing this reverse diet prior to a fat loss phase to make the process easier and more successful? Well, I look at more spendthrift individuals and say, you don't really need it. And then I look at thrifty individuals and say, I don't think that there's anything that we're doing in positive or neutral energy balance. It simply doesn't seem to change the fact that when you transition into a state of underfeeding, your total daily energy expenditure is going to drop mm -hmm. uh, to a greater extent than most people. So for those reasons, I think one of the most popular applications of reverse dieting is uh kind of hard to justify from a theoretical basis. And then from an empirical basis, there's no evidence to suggest none that I'm aware of that it actually works. So uh, I think the empirical evidence is lacking. And I think the theoretical rationale has some really big gaps, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, now, I, a couple things that I do want to point out here is reverse dieting as an idea might not be entirely useless. There are some potential applications. And I think there are two that come to mind for me. First of all, like I said earlier, if you're a very advanced physique athlete and your main opportunity to be better next year than you were this year is by coming in leaner at your next show, I think it does make sense to very strategically navigate the post-show period and navigate that, that trajectory of weight regain. You know, you're not, you, you don't need to set yourself up for this huge off season where you're going to bulk like crazy and gain 20 pounds that's not going to happen, right? So mm -hmm. you don't need to rush the process of getting back into a really anabolic state physiologically. So I think for some very advanced physique athletes, it can make sense after a competition. I also think it can make sense not to set yourself up for your next diet, but when you're, when you're uh, basically transitioning from the end of your diet to a long-term maintenance phase. And so I usually... I think we're in agreement that when we talk about someone's maintenance intake, so the calorie level that allows them to maintain 
relatively stable body weight. Mm-hmm. It appears to be in practice a bit of a range, yeah. right? So there's not just one number where it's like if you eat 1900 calories, that is the only caloric intake that can keep you weight stable. It appears that we do have a bit of a range. There's some flexibility there. So like I said, if you are, uh, let's say, a thrifty individual and you are at the end of a dieting phase, uh, your total daily energy expenditure when you're still in a deficit there is probably suppressed a little bit because of that thrifty phenotype. If you are transitioning from a weight loss phase to long-term maintenance and you want to have more of that dietary flexibility, you want to see if you can get away with having slightly slightly higher calories without significant weight gain. In that context, you might be able to walk your calories up a little bit and just kind of nudge your maintenance calorie intake toward the top end of your maintenance range. So basically, all you're doing there is slowly increasing caloric intake so that you're able to uh, reverse some of those adaptations that you experience during the diet. And this is to make your long-term maintenance a little bit more sustainable. Uh, once you get back into your next weight loss phase, like I said, I have no reason to believe that you're not going to have those adaptive drops again. Uh, and another thing to keep in mind is you don't necessarily have to do this super slowly. Uh, you could just jump straight to a slightly higher intake and hope that you know some of those adaptations reverse themselves. But the slower you go and the more you treat it as an incremental process, the lower the likelihood that you're going to overshoot the number and accidentally gain more weight than you wish than you wanted to. Right. So that's one instance. And then again, there, there's potential for, uh, let's say that you're someone with a spendthrift phenotype and you're at the end of a weight loss phase. Uh, and still you'd like to have a little bit more wiggle room with your caloric intake. Even in that situation, there's possible, there's a possibility that you could nudge your maintenance calories toward the top end of your maintenance range. Cause again, when spendthrift individuals start overfeeding just a little bit, they often tend to have some adaptive adjustments that increase their total daily energy expenditure. So all of that's to say, I wouldn't say that reverse dieting is completely indefensible in all contexts. I wouldn't say it is unequivocally useless or unjustifiable. However, I would say that one of the more common applications I see, uh, in my opinion, has a low likelihood of success. Uh, and of course, if more data come out to uh, contradict that, then I'll be in front of the mic uh, letting everybody know. But for now, I, I think uh, I, I think the reason I bring this up is I think it's a bit counterproductive. I, I think that it has people chasing this thing that takes them uh, away from the goal that's at top of mind. They're going through this process that may not actually be contributing to success. And it can be very disheartening when you did all that work. I mean, I've, I've talked to people who feel like they mismanaged a diet and they ruined everything that they gained during that meticulous reverse diet process they, that they went through. Yeah. And I think it's very discouraging when you put yourself through that and maybe you do have a slight increase in total daily energy expenditure and then you switch to that fat loss phase and you're right back to square, run, square one. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people internalize that as a failure Whereas, you know, physiologically, I think that's probably a fairly predictable outcome. Yeah. So that is reverse dieting and literally everything I wanted to say about it. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess it, it makes sense to me and I don't know, I don't know why necessarily someone would expect it to work 
otherwise mm-hmm. like in in a different way just because just because like you know the the old school approach of bulking and then cutting and you know you, you bulk for a while and then you transition directly into a fat loss phase whatever a, a reverse diet is going to do for you in terms of increasing daily energy expenditure um I don't know what what that would do for you that just simply being in a deficit wouldn't do for you. <laughs> and so if you're not in a surplus, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that being in a surplus wouldn't do for you. Right. So, you know, if you've been in a surplus for six months, nine months, whatever, and then you transition into a deficit and your calories have to get relatively low again, I don't know why someone would anticipate that. Uh, your experience following a reverse diet would be different. You know, right. like what, what is, what is a reverse diet? Like, you know, basically maintenance, we'll, we'll call it an aggressive maintenance. Like the, the, the <laughs> bit of an oxymoron there. Yeah. yeah. An aggressive maintenance, a very small surplus. I don't know what that would do to quote unquote, build your metabolic capacity that just simply being in a normal surplus wouldn't. And so if, if people aren't experiencing uh, increases in the calories that they can consume while in a deficit, just following normal surpluses. I don't know why someone would expect that the calories that they would be able to consume in a deficit would be a lot higher following, you know, aggressive maintenance or a very small surplus. I completely agree. And, and that was why I did want to add that caveat where I talked about cases where reverse dieting could make sense and could work. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we're when you're talking about shifting from a diet to long term maintenance, like you said, uh, whether you slowly kind of nudge your calories up there or just jump to it right away, uh, there's really not much of a reason to believe that the results would be any different if you guessed well with where you jump to. You know, the the only real um balancing act there is determining uh how quickly do you want to get to that caloric intake and how comfortable are you with missing by a little bit and accepting potentially uh, a little bit of weight gain that you hadn't planned for Mm -hmm. but but yeah i mean i i agree with you and so hopefully people will hear this and maybe reconsider uh or or at least feel like they have more options i think a lot of people right now feel like dude if you're not reverse dieting before you're cut like you're wasting your time what are you doing Uh, so I I hope that this alleviates some of that pressure for some people. Okay. Uh, moving on, it looks like you've got a research review here that seems, uh, very scandalous depending on what you conclude. So we'll see if I get defensive. (laughs) Uh, yeah. So, um, this research review I think is kind of timely, but not as timely as it could have been, uh, around, a month or two months ago, uh, there had been a couple pretty high-profile deaths of competitive professional bodybuilders, and there was a lot of discourse around, like, you know, are are the training methods or the drugs or whatever in, in professional bodybuilding, um, like, particularly dangerous and killing off bodybuilders at an increased rate. And if, if you ask somebody just like in the world of bodybuilding to just kind of list you several bodybuilders who uh, died of complications, often heart issues, um, seemingly far too young. 
they'll probably be able to rattle off a, a pretty decent list to you. Like there, there are a lot of instances that people are aware of. Um, and so I, I think there is this growing perception that, um, you know, that professional bodybuilders are just dropping like flies at a dramatically increased rate and that the sport is actually quite dangerous and quite deleterious from a long-term perspective. And so, so to be clear, I'm talking about untested professional bodybuilding here, not talking about natural bodybuilding. Um, but yeah, so, so that seems to be a perception that's forming. And like I said, this segment could have been more timely, but um, one, I'm not going to name specific names of people who have died in this segment because I don't want to give the perception that we're, you know, trying to use someone's death to increase traffic to the podcast. I, I think that's kind of gross. Um, and two, I, I wanted to wait to do this segment, uh, again, just so it wouldn't seem like we were trying to jump on something super timely and just use deaths in general to generate traffic. Um, so anyway, now that that, now that the the most heated part of that discourse is behind us by a couple months, uh, I, I thought I would address this because I think that that perception is perhaps incorrect, depending on how you look at it. Um, so a guy named Greg Merritt, who is the editor of the website thebarbell.com, reached out to me uh, about this uh, a couple months back. And he had an article on his site, which was which was very well done, looking at mortality rates in pro bodybuilders. So what he did is he basically compiled a list of everyone who had competed at the most prestigious, uh, untested pro bodybuilding shows. So the Mr. Olympia, uh, the U.S. Arnold Classic, um, the uh, precursor to the Arnold Classic, the World Pro, the Knight of Champions, and the successor to the Knight of Champions, the New York Pro. Like those are uh, some of the biggest bodybuilding shows in the world. So he looked to see everyone who had competed at those shows going back to the inception of the Mr. Olympia in 1965, uh, identified all of the people who had competed there, and then uh, basically just tracked down all of the ones he possibly could. Uh, and he was able to confirm uh, whether or not 478 of those competitors were either dead or alive. Uh, and that was 478 out of, I think, 570-ish uh, in total. So he he found life or death records of about 85% of the people who had competed at those shows. Um, and, and basically just using actuarial tables, uh, like likelihood of death by birth year or by age, um, he just plotted the mortality rates of pro bodybuilders versus just men in the general American public. Uh, and he, he talks about this, like using us actuarial tables, um, because, you know, not every pro bodybuilder is American, but, you know, a lot of them are. And also just like mortality rates differ country by country. And uh, part of it's just a sample size issue. Like if there are six professional Egyptian bodybuilders, like 
you wouldn't really have much of a sample size comparing that against like Egyptian actuarial table. So he just standardized everything using uh, U.S. data, which which I think is is a pretty justifiable thing to do. Uh, and basically found that mortality rates of bodybuilders uh, were the same as for men in the general public. And that seemed to hold across generations. So for people born in the 30s, uh, mortality rates pretty similar. For people born in the 50s, mortality rates pretty similar. And the thing that people are really concerned about now, like uh, pro bodybuilders in their 20s or 30s uh, dropping dead, uh, it seems like mortality rates of young bodybuilders are comparable to mortality rates of men in the general population of a similar age. So from that perspective, it seems that bodybuilding, like pro bodybuilding, drugs, all of that, uh, doesn't necessarily seem to be particularly deleterious, at least from a mortality perspective. Uh, however, as I mentioned, it kind of depends on how you look at the data. Um, so like I said, th this article by Greg Merritt was really well done. Uh, so he did what I think was a very smart thing of not just looking at mortality rates in the general population, because, you know, you could argue the American population could potentially be healthier. Um, and so he looked at data on uh, pro athletes and other sports to see how the mortality rates of pro bodybuilders compared to other professional athletes. Uh, and so the mortality rates of pro bodybuilders actually considerably lower than the mortality rates of pro wrestlers. Pro wrestling, fucked up sport. Uh, not going to expand on that further, but there it's, uh, it's, it's not good. Like they, they put themselves through a lot, um, like a lot of prescription drug issues. Uh, seems like the, the actual like promotion organizations don't really look after their talent all that well. Uh, but yeah, pro bodybuilders, way lower mortality rate than pro wrestlers, but also considerably higher mortality rates than uh, current or ex-NFL players and current or ex-pro baseball players. Um, so from that perspective, it seems like it may be somewhat deleterious to a health from a health perspective because, you know, you would anticipate people who are exercising a lot and generally maintaining a pretty decent body composition, you would expect them to have a lower mortality rate than the general public they don't really seem to, whereas people like pro football players, pro baseball players do seem to have a reduced mortality rate. Um, and I would also note that that's including pro football players. When you separate separate out linemen versus non-linemen, you start to see some pretty big discrepancies oh, yeah, yeah. in health outcomes. Yeah. So uh, that might even be understating uh, you know, the, the health benefits of playing football at a healthier body composition yeah, or at yeah. a lower uh, BMI level body fat percentage. For sure. So, yeah. Um, so it, it basically seems like relative to the amount of exercise they're doing, pro bodybuilders probably do have an elevated mortality rate. But again, just relative to the general public, it, it really doesn't seem to be that bad. Um, th the article also looked at causes of death. Uh, which, again, I thought was a very smart thing to do in instances where a cause of death for pro bodybuilders was known. Uh, and it seemed like the causes of death that had been identified did seem to lean pretty starkly towards heart disease and kidney disease uh, relative to the general population. So even though overall mortality rates were pretty similar, 
um, rates of death from kidney disease and heart disease were higher than what was observed in the general population, which I do suspect that is probably related to uh, side effects of steroids and peptide hormones. Um, and the other thing to note is there, there's not currently any strong indication that the relative mortality rates in pro bodybuilders are increasing over time, like I mentioned. Um, th there is this perception that pro bodybuilders in their 20s and 30s are just dropping dead at a massively elevated rate. Um, and the, the data doesn't seem to bear that out. And it, it could be the case, like I don't, I don't follow the drug world super closely. It could be that there are new drug protocols coming down the pike that are super dangerous. And 10 years from now, the data could look a lot different and it may end up being clear that like, yeah, what people are doing now, super dangerous, a lot of bodybuilders dropping dead really young. But currently the, the data doesn't bear that out. You're, you're seeing mortality rates that are comparable to what's observed in the general population on an age matched basis. Um, I will note as well. So when, when he sent me this article, uh, I read it, I found it very interesting. Uh, but I, I did kind of note in the back of my mind, I was like, I feel like I've seen an article before saying that pro bodybuilders do have elevated mortality rates. Uh, and I, I was not wrong. Uh, I found the article that I had in mind. Uh, this will be linked in the show notes. Title is Rates of Mortality Are Higher Among Professional Male Bodybuilders. Pretty straightforward title. Uh, lead researcher was Gwartney, and it was published in the Journal of Urology in 2016. Uh, and so, you know, I, I was basically interested, like, what, which of these analyses is more likely? Actually, no, um, getting slightly ahead of myself. So the, the headline finding of this study by, by Gwartney and colleagues was that uh, pro bodybuilders did have an elevated mortality rate uh, relative to the general male population. Uh, they found that the relative uh, increase in mortality was about uh, 34%, uh, again, compared to uh, age-matched uh, age -matched men. Um, so that, that study did suggest that pro bodybuilders do have a relatively higher mortality risk. Uh, and so, you know, I, I was basically interested in like, which of these analyses is more likely to be correct and reliable? Is it the one published in the Journal of Urology or is it the blog post? And honestly, I think it's the blog post. And I think that for one, uh, one major, major reason. So as I mentioned, uh, the, the article from Greg Merritt, um, so he identified 571 total bodybuilders that had competed at those elite bodybuilding shows. And he was able to identify whether 478 of them were either dead or alive at the, at the point that he was writing the article. So he was, he was able to, you know, identify life or death in 85% of the people he looked into. Uh, and for the Gwartney study, they cast a slightly wider net to, to look at. I think, I think they basically just looked for a list of like all of the bodybuilders who had won their pro card since 1948. Um, so they initially started with a list of close to 1600 professional male bodybuilders to look at 1578 to be precise. 
but they were only able to find mortality data for 597 of them. Uh, so fewer than 40% of the totals they looked into. And I think that that likely introduces a pretty major bias uh, in, in their data because it's easier to figure out if someone's dead than if they're alive. Because uh, most of the time when people die, there's, you know, there's going to be a, a obituary published somewhere. Like so, someone is probably going to say something about it somewhere. Whereas yeah, it, earlier you, you used the term uh, life or death certificates. And it, I was like, dude, I'm like way behind on submitting all of my life certificates <laughs> uh, or life or death, death records. I yeah, think. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it's not that hard to figure out if someone's dead. Like I'm sure there are people who die all the time that we would not be able to find individual records that they died. But, but on average, it is somewhat easy to figure out if someone is dead or not. Like generally there's, there's information about that. Whereas like, you know, if someone won their pro card and they're just not active on the internet, but they're still just kind of like kicking around, it's hard to find confirmation that they're alive. Um, and so I kind of think that's what's going on in the Guartney study since, since they were only able to, identify whether about 40% of the people they were looking into were dead or alive. I think it's, it's highly likely that they identified a lot of the deaths and failed to identify a lot of the people who were still alive. So I think that 34% elevation in mortality risk uh, in the bodybuilders they looked at, I, I do suspect that that's a pretty hefty overestimation. Um, and just simply based on the fact that the Greg Merritt article identified life or death in 85% of the people they looked into, I, I think that that is probably uh, more reliable, if you ask me. Um, so anyway, I, I think the current picture is complex. Uh, relative, again, relative to the amount of exercise they're doing and uh, like uh, bodybuilders tend to have lower rates of smoking um, generally you don't see super heavy drinking. Like you do tend to see a lot of, uh, habits and behaviors that would be predictive of lower mortality rates, longer lifespan, and you don't see reductions in mortality rates relative to the general population. So from that perspective, the drugs they're doing are, are probably having a deleterious effect, but I do, I do think that maybe there's some degree of alarmism where people are overstating the risk uh, that these people are taking on from competing in that style of bodybuilding because it, it doesn't seem like the mortality rates they're looking at are elevated relative to the general population. So, uh, or, I mean, even if we take the Guartney study uh, at face value, a 34% elevation in mortality risk, like, I don't want to downplay that. Like that's not nothing. Um, but I mean, the way people talk about it, you would think that they're saying like, dude, bodybuilders are like 10 times more likely to die in their thirties than people in the general population. Like that, that seems to be the vibe uh, of the conversation. And, and even if we take the 34% elevation at face value, which again, I think is probably an overestimate, but even if we did take that at face value, I think that that's, still kind of a more muted story than, than what people are trying to tell. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of think that that whole discussion 
is maybe a little bit too alarmist, a little bit blown out of proportion. Um, like I, I do certainly think that there are risks and side effects of performance enhancing drugs that people need to consider. I do think that they're, that they are having a net negative impact on mortality. Uh, but I think that people are, uh, maybe a little bit too quick to exaggerate those effects and uh, a- assume that the risks and dangers are quite a bit larger than they actually are. Yeah, but but of course, one thing to keep in mind is that it is possible for bad things to happen to you that do not necessarily kill you. Correct. So, of course, uh, there are those notable side effects associated with PED use, and you'll want to make sure that you're monitoring your health on an individualized basis if you happen to be using those types of things. Yeah. And also, to be clear, take none of this as a recommendation. I'm not saying drugs are safe. You should do them. Um, You know, I've mentioned this before. One of the reasons, I mean, so I I mentioned in the segment, uh, it, it does seem like there is an elevated risk of cardiovascular events. That's one of the things that keeps me off of doing it because, dude, Knucklesmen <laughs> die of heart attacks in their 50s and 60s, uh, typically. And uh, I don't want to be one of them. <laughs> or, or at minimum, I, I would prefer for it to be in my 50s or 60s instead of my 40s. So, um, right. you know, uh, th- that's like a, an individual risk that I'm personally very much not comfortable with. So, yeah, I mean, all, all I'm saying is I think that it's, a much more complex and nuanced story than drugs bad and all of these bodybuilders are dying at a massively elevated rate. Like the, the data, the data don't bear out that incredibly alarmist interpretation of, of the facts. Yeah. Uh, I think one of the things that probably has uh, contributed to that a lot lately is some of the deaths, um, you know, back a few months ago, like you mentioned, they were so acute in nature. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that does lead to some of these, you know, brief periods of time where we do see elevated deaths or serious side effects, some of those fluctuations with things that aren't just like, oh, I was on testosterone for a long time and it was bad for my heart, you Mm -hmm. know, but uh, like really high doses. But you know, more more so things like, oh, I had an acute medical emergency because I was using a particular type of diuretic or, or other type of kind of uh, acute medical emergency secondary to drug use. So I think when, when you see a few of those in a row, which could be subject to short-term trends and just what people seem to be doing, mm-hmm. those are the types of things where it becomes so, so alarming uh, that it's almost hard to look at that data with any level of objectivity, right? Yeah, it, it's yeah. like, no, dude, like on Instagram, like four out of six days, I heard about a bodybuilder that died, you yeah. know, but, but yeah, um, very good work by you and very good work by what was the author of that article again? Greg Merritt. A lot of, a lot of good Greg's out there in the world. Very, uh, very underrated, uh, scientific talent among people with the first name of Greg. And I think it is time that we rise up and get the uh, get the recognition we deserve. I agree. So yeah, the uh, all the articles that you mentioned will be linked in the show notes. Uh, now shifting gears a little bit, uh, it is December, correct? I think we can all agree. I think so. So when the season starts changing uh, and when we go from fall to winter, the days get shorter. 
And I have tried something different this year. This is, by the way, the Coach's Corner segment, a very practical, applied segment that isn't super, super research heavy. Um, but anyway, transitioning from fall to winter, I tried something a little different this year. I noticed that, generally speaking, I tend to be... Uh, I tend to be somewhat impacted by, you know, what you might consider like seasonal affective disorder. And I don't want to downplay uh, seasonal affective disorder. I don't know the the severity at which you can say, oh, I have that. I just know that when the days get shorter and I have less exposure to sunlight, I, I do historically notice that I'm just a little bit gloomier. You know, mood isn't quite as positive. Motivation levels, enthusiasm generally just isn't quite as high. This year, I tried to do something about it. Um, so, what I've been doing here, I, I've trying, I've been trying to lean on some of the research about uh, getting better sleep, some of the research about just circadian biology in general. And the reason that I, I'm mentioning this as a coach's corner segment is because it's something I've noticed in my coaching as well. Um, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but sometimes as the days start getting shorter and the seasons start shifting and people are kind of cooped up inside a little bit more and they're not getting as much exposure to sunlight, they're not able to do the things outside that they normally like to do, I've noticed some seasonal patterns uh, just in like the vibes I get from my clients. Like the general vibe gets worse. Um, I've noticed that there's more uh, staleness with regards to training where it's just like, yeah, I'm just not as enthusiastic about these workouts. Maybe you're a worse coach in the winter. I considered that the first time <laughs> I noticed it. I, I honestly did. I was like, dude, what happened in late November that made me start sucking as a coach? Mm -hmm. Um, but, but after seeing it a few years in a row, I was like, I think this is kind of a seasonal thing. And then you realized your Australian clients were doing great. <laughs> but, um, but, but I've also noticed even things like just kind of slightly heightened sensitivity to discomfort. Mm -hmm. So like something that would have been like, ah, my shoulders, like a two out of 10 on the pain scale, you know, late November, it becomes like a three or a four out of 10. Uh, and these are, just to be clear, completely non-scientific observations, not evidence-based, but simply anecdotal and me kind of looking at evidence to think, what might be going on here, you know? And I know for me personally, it was really just a quality of life thing. I was like, I don't want to be all gloomy for the rest of this winter. So what I've been trying to do and what I've been having a lot of success with, uh, first of all, just acknowledging that sleep matters a lot. Uh, so I've been trying to do the really basic sleep hygiene stuff and be really consistent about it throughout this season. So having a consistent sleep and wake time, uh, trying to kind of in line with circadian biology, trying to align my wake up time for when the sun is coming up, uh, or at least close to that, because, um, you know, when the winter comes, a lot of times I get all annoyed that I don't get a lot of sunlight. And I'm like, dude, you slept through three hours of sunlight this morning. Like mm -hmm. you kind of don't get to complain about <laughs> the lack of sunlight. So really making sure I make the most of it and experience the sunlight that is present. Um, and also getting some sun exposure early in the day. So I've been starting my day, uh, when possible, actually getting outside, getting some fresh air, moving around a little bit and getting some of that direct sun exposure. And I think when people look into, uh, some of the circadian biology literature, there's been a lot of emphasis on light avoidance, right? So you've probably seen articles, probably heard podcasts talking about, you know, good sleep hygiene before bed, 
uh, stay away from artificial light, stay away from light that's kind of on the blue wavelength uh, part of the spectrum. Even sometimes wear blue blockers like glasses that that block out blue uh, light. Using filters on uh, electronic devices that kind of change uh, the, the the color spectrum of light coming out. So a lot of focus has been on light avoidance, but there hasn't been much that I've seen on actual light exposure. And I think it is most beneficial to leverage both sides of that coin. So trying to get some really nice light exposure early in the day uh, seems to be a really positive thing when you look at the totality of some of the research on the convergence of circadian biology and just overall health and wellness. Um, so I don't want to overhype it and frame it as like a life-changing biohack. Um, but if you're someone like me who notices that when the winter comes along and the days get short, you, you're just a little more sluggish, a little more gloomy, and you know, you're interested in maybe taking steps to be a little bit more proactive about uh, mitigating that or trying to attenuate it with just little behavioral things. That's been what I've been focusing on this year. Uh, and I've been really happy with how it's been going. So just a nice mixture of really good sleep hygiene habits, a consistent sleep and wake time, and just trying to get out and get some light exposure early, coupled with uh, some of that blue light avoidance late at night. It's been a really, really positive thing for me. And uh, also something that's just practically useful is being aware that a lot of people do notice this. So like people who might not think that they have anything related to seasonal affective disorder, it's really common for people to just to be a, a little bit gloomier <laughs> this time of year. And it's important, especially if you're a coach to uh, know that and prepare for that in your interactions with clients and keep an eye out for signs that there might be some changes in affect that occur seasonally. And just being aware of that can make you a more effective communicator and make you more proactive as a coach, um, especially with how online coaching works these days. You might live in an area that's you know close to the equator and you're like, dude, I didn't even know that was a problem, but you've got clients at really high latitudes where, I mean, they've, they've got a few hours of sunlight every day. And that can be a big thing when it comes to the subjective experience of training, even health ramifications aside. So uh, just a little tangent there, uh, just because just by doing those little quick things, it, it's been really, uh, really positive for me. So so maybe people will be able to give that a try and notice some other positive things as well. Dude, I, I might have to give some of that a shot. I got to tell you, I'm, I'm hit by seasonal affective disorder like a truck every year. I feel fucking terrible. But uh, yeah. A yeah. lot of people do. And, and it, I it think is what it is. The reason I bring it up without doing like a really science, like I don't claim to be like a circadian biologist. Like I'm not going to get deep into the weeds of that research. But yeah, the reason I thought it was prudent to bring up is uh, I didn't even know it was a thing until I had had like seven gloomy winters. And then it was like, oh, people do that. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was just me. And it wasn't severe enough or large enough in magnitude for me to say, like, I got to do something about this winter stuff. Um, so the reason I bring it up is to uh, not try to over overstate my knowledge on the topic, but to say, hey, there are some little behavioral things that might actually be pretty impactful. Makes sense to me. Okay, what's our next segment here? Uh, oh, we've got a Q&A. Yeah, we, we got some Q&As. Do you want to go first or should I? Uh, yeah, we can we can trade off a little bit, I reckon. Okay. Uh, why don't you start with your first one? Sure. So, um, 
there were there were two questions in the Facebook group uh, about uh, optimizing biomechanics from Gavin Chester and Ross Quigley. Uh, so Gavin asked, uh, how important is, quote unquote, optimizing biomechanics for hypertrophy? For example, adjusting line of resistance with the direction of the muscle fibers, etc. Ross chimed in, I second this. I see a lot of Instagram accounts that go into detail on both lines of resistance, strength slash resistance curves active range of motion for a given muscle, et cetera. And basically like how important is that stuff? Do you need to be concerned about it? Um, And uh, yeah, so my perspective is that (laughs) it's hard, it's hard to know. So, so this is a uh, partially scientific answer and partially just my opinion and vibes based answer. Uh, and the reason it's hard to give a, a fully scientific answer to this is that uh, a lot of the ideas that that people are putting forth are not directly tested. So, like, you know, for example, if you say a particular type of way of doing cable rows is going to build your rhomboids way more than some standard way of doing maybe like uh, uh, incline bench dumbbell rows, like your your it's your prerogative to make that claim uh but that hasn't been researched so you know could be correct could be incorrect um but it it's hard to objectively say so you know we we are mostly in the realm of opinion and conjecture here uh but my perspective is that it's probably a matter of degree um and, and for example, the principle itself of, of different exercises or different variations of exercises maybe being more or less effective for hypertrophy in general or hypertrophy of a particular region of a muscle, um, that general idea does have some scientific support. Uh, so again, not support for specific individual exercises, but just kind of the concept itself. So for example, there's... Um, there's one study showing that incline bench builds the upper pecs better than flat bench. We've talked about that on the podcast before. I'm a little bit skeptical of that study, but just noting that that it exists. Um, <laughs> there's a recent study showing that uh, knee extensions build the rectus femoris way better than uh, like squats do. So, you know, you can't necessarily assume that all quad exercises will build all heads of the quads equally. Uh, there's a study showing that bench press and triceps build like different heads or uh, uh, bench press and tricep extensions build different heads of the triceps. So, for example, uh, bench press seemed to be really good for specifically building the lateral head of the tricep, uh, whereas the long head of the tricep was grown a lot more effectively with like skull crushers. Um, so there's there's direct evidence on that. Uh, and then just regional muscle activation in response to different exercises and uh, regional muscle hypertrophy are are pretty well-established phenomena at this point. So just kind of on a baseline level, there is there is reason to believe that, um, you know, attempting to to quote unquote optimize exercises for a particular like to target particular muscles um, might have some merit, even if there's not direct evidence for the specific exercises or exercise variations being discussed. Um, 
And there's also some research showing that relatively small uh, quote-unquote optimizations can have a notable effect, effect on hypertrophy. So it's not just a matter of, say, bench press versus tricep extensions for different heads of the triceps. Even relatively small variations of the same general exercise may be more or less effective. So there was a study by um, Mayo, uh, I believe, from this past year looking at uh, hypertrophy of the hamstrings following seated or lying hamstring curls, finding that seated hamstring curls were uh, quite a bit more effective for hypertrophy, probably because they they were training the hamstrings at a longer muscle length. So if you're seated, you're in some hip flexion that lengthens the hamstrings, might make seated leg curls a little bit more effective for hamstring growth than lying leg curls. So there, there even is some evidence that... Uh, relatively small, quote-unquote, optimizations like that could be effective. Um, personally, I, I do think that the most important factors uh, are just um, range of motion. So, for example, can you load the target muscle at relatively long muscle lengths, like near the end of its range of motion? Uh, and also just whether the exercise you're doing um, is likely to be limited by the muscle you're the most interested in. So, you know, for example, um, take dumbbell bench versus bench press. Some people's bench press performance might be limited by their triceps or by their shoulders. And for them, maybe the bench press might not be the most effective uh, pec builder. But with dumbbell press, for example, for virtually everyone, that's going to be limited by their pecs. So, you know, that would probably tend to make it uh, an effective pec exercise for most people. Um, so I, I think those are the two biggest factors, just range of motion and, and whether or not the target muscle is going to be the limiting muscle for uh, the exercise being performed. And the other caveat I'd throw in is that I think for biarticular muscles, there's some decent evidence to suggest that single joint exercises tend to be more effective than multi-joint exercises. So uh, I mentioned tricep extensions versus bench press for uh, growth of the long head of the triceps. Tricep extensions were more effective. Long head of the tricep is a multi-joint muscle. Um, and same thing with uh, knee extensions for rectus femoris growth. Again, um, the rectus femoris is a biarticular muscle. Single joint exercise seemed to be better. So, you know, I, I think that those are the main factors to keep in mind, whether or not optimizations past that point make much of a difference. I'm kind of agnostic on. Um, and uh, I, I think that I, I think that in general, a, a way to approach it is just kind of to ask yourself whether you need something fresh for, for a particular muscle or not. So, you know, for example, if you've got pretty big pecs and you feel most kind of standard pec exercises in your pecs, they feel pretty pumped, pretty fatigued after you do some pec training. I don't think you need to go out seeking crazy new pec exercises. Like you certainly could just if you want something new to do for novelty's sake, but I personally don't think it's going to affect your your results all that much. However, if there is a particular muscle group where like just the the standard go-to exercises don't really seem to be doing it for you. So uh, I, I think like lats are a pretty common one. A lot of people don't feel their lats as much as they would like to if they if they were doing 
uh, pull-ups, pull-downs, pull-overs, just kind of like standard lat exercises. Uh, and, and maybe they have relatively poor lat development compared to the rest of their physique. If you come across someone on Instagram or some other platform saying like, here are some crazy new lat exercises that that will really blow up your lats and help you feel your lats contract and doing what you want them to uh, if pull downs aren't getting the job done for you. I mean, my perspective is it it doesn't hurt to give it a shot. Um, you know, if what you're current currently doing isn't working, uh, at minimum, it, it doesn't hurt to try out a new idea. I do think that a lot of the kind of, I, I think that a lot of the reasoning underpinning a lot of the exercises be, that, that might be recommended kind of under the umbrella or for the purpose of like quote unquote optimizing exercise technique. I, I do think that the the reasoning some might be a little bit flimsy at times. And it, it kind of reminds me a little bit of like keto content. So they they both kind of go with like, here's a plausible sounding mechanism. I tried this thing and it seemed to work for me. Uh, and therefore we can generalize it and and it's a good thing for everyone. So in, in the case of keto, like hey, uh, like insulin is this thing and like, oh, that, that seems scary. And like, I tried a low carb diet, uh, help me control my appetite and lose weight. Therefore, like low carb keto is the best. Everyone should do it. And, and I, I get kind of the same vibe from the kind of like galaxy brain, like exercise variation stuff. Like, oh man, if you like do do rows on this exact machine in this exact way, like it technically lines up with like the the line of pull for this region of your lats a little bit better. And like I tried it and ah, I got a I got a pretty good pump off of it. So like everyone should do it this way. This is this is way better than the typical way of doing this exercise. I don't know. To to me, it seems like it it seems like some of that content makes some jumps that are somewhat unjustifiable and at minimum makes claims with more with with a with a higher level of confidence than is fully justifiable like you know here's a plausible mechanism and it seemed to feel good for me uh i i don't think is enough evidence to therefore recommend it as a generally superior thing for everyone um so yeah i i some of it leaves a bad taste in my mouth but i i think i have a um I think I have a generally sympathetic perspective to it. Um, like I said, I, I think most of the time the old standards get the job done for most people. But I also think it, it doesn't hurt to have more tools in the toolbox. If there are some muscle groups that say just just aren't aren't going well for you, like the stand the the old classic exercises don't really seem to be doing what you want them to do. Or if you're a coach and you train clients and like you know, uh, for, for a particular client, they just, for whatever reason, feel uh, like RDLs in their glutes and they feel leg curls in their fucking calves because your gastroc is also uh, technically a knee flexor. And like, man, this client just can't grow their hamstrings. Like, what do I do? You know, I, I don't think it hurts to consume some of that content because if someone has a, a galaxy brain idea for a novel hamstring exercise... 
doesn't hurt to know it exists, to try it out with a client who might be struggling to feel their hamstrings working with, with kind of classic hamstring exercises. So I, I'm sympathetic to it overall, but I, I do think a lot of that content um, kind of like overstates what the the reasoning and evidence that backs it up. But like I said, I, I, I would say I'm vaguely sympathetic towards it. Have you come across any great exercises to really light up your popliteus? Because I could use some of those if, if you have any. I have not. Although I will say, uh, here here's kind of a weird looking, but uh, like galaxy brain, like quote unquote, like optimized version of an exercise that I thought looked ridiculous um, before I tried it and now absolutely love. Uh, and also... This uh, this exercise comes from like one of only three T Nation articles that I regularly share with people. So uh, John Meadows had a really good T Nation article back in the day. I maybe it, it may have been like 2011, 2012. Like it, it was it, it was qu quite a bit in the past, uh, but it, it was on shoulder training. And uh, one of the things I had always noticed is like, I never felt my rear delts doing anything. Like if I just did kind of like normal rear delt raises, they'd get, they'd get a little bit of a pump, but like I'd mostly feel it in my rhomboids and mid traps. Um, and I didn't have particularly good rear delt growth, which was actually a problem for me as a power lifter. Cause I had no shelf for low bar squatting. Uh, and like I wanted to, I wanted to try low bar, high bar seemed to be fine, but I had zero rear delt development. So uh, like I could do singles for low bar squats, but if I tried to do reps, the bar would start sliding. Uh, and so I come, I come across this T nation article uh, by, by John Meadows, who I liked and respected uh, seemed, seemed to be putting out good content. And so uh, the rear delt exercise he recommended was you basically just take way heavier dumbbells than you could possibly do full range of motion with. And you're basically face down on a bench and doing like super partial range of motion rear delt raises. Um, and you know, you're, you're intentionally trying to relax your scapulae and not like retract on every rep. And so you're just doing like little swings that you're only using your rear delts for. Uh, and then you're also trying to like make sure the dumbbells don't hit at the bottom. So like, there is still some eccentric component where you're using your rear delts to decelerate the dumbbells so they don't cling together at the bottom of every rep. And I got to say, man, I love them. They're great. That's the only rear delt exercise that really blows up my rear delts. They, they, they're fucking toasted at the end. They're the only things that make my rear delts sore. And I got some, some very solid rear delt growth out of them. Uh, they, they finally gave me that shelf to where I could uh, uh, rest the bar pretty comfortably for low bar squats. So yeah, I, I'm I'm sympathetic to the idea. I, I just think that that sometimes people overplay their hands, um, and you know I, I see it less personally. I see it less of like here are more optimized versions of exercises that are going to work way better for people. I see it more of like. I had a creative idea for how you could target this muscle. And if you struggle to target this muscle, uh, here, here's an idea to try out like that. That's how I personally, uh, interact with, with content like that. Um, so yeah, you can, you can view it however you please. 
Good stuff. Uh, I'm going to answer a few Q&A questions here kind of quickly. Cool. Uh, first, I got a series of questions by someone named Fantastic Elevator 6. Um, and you have to really watch me when I say some of these usernames, because if it's a completely inappropriate reference, I'm not going to get it. So you have to come in and say, hey, we, uh, we, we don't support whatever Eric just said. Okay. So uh, anyway, the series of questions was about my recent transition to a vegetarian diet. Um, and I got, I got a kick out of the, the series of questions. Uh, they were, they were partially facetious, but, um, I think that there's too much attention dedicated to the idea that a vegetarian diet is like wholly unsustainable and not compatible with human life. <laughs> like, like, so, um, for example, like, uh, how is it incorporating all those beans and legumes into the diet? Like, it's fine. Uh, questions like, you know, how has been like, you know, my, my GI system dealing with all the additional plant food, uh, totally fine. Like no difference at all. Uh, question, any change in supplementation to, uh, to complement my dietary change? Uh, not really. Uh, I, I was already taking a multivitamin, and the only real change I made with supplementation was instead of taking fish oil, I switched over to algae oil, which I actually much prefer. Greg, we were talking about this uh, the other day. Uh, fish oil is known to have that kind of fishy smell to it sometimes. And, you know, sometimes you'll get the it's kind of gross, but the burps with the fishy aftertaste, that stuff grosses me out. With algae, you feel like you're just eating some delicious seaweed. Uh, it's really, really nice. So I actually, even if I were not a vegetarian, I would probably always go algae oil over fish oil, uh, if given the chance. Um, the, uh, and if, like I said, I'm not like, uh, being dismissive of this series of questions cause they are good questions. Um, but yeah, like people have asked me, is it hard to get protein? And honestly, not really, unless you're on a really low calorie diet or your protein is realistically higher than you need. You know, a lot of people are like, dude, I can't do a vegetarian diet. I could never get the protein. And it's like, right. But why are you having like four grams per kilogram of protein? You know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it, it really hasn't been that bad. There have been, you know, minor inconveniences, minor, uh, you know, situations where I have to think about, okay, where am I going to get a plant-based source of protein? But overall, it's been a, a very easy change and I haven't had to do anything too crazy uh, in terms of supplementation or anything like that. But the part of the question that I thought was excellent, uh, uh, I would like an update on how the moral superiority feels. Um, is the <laughs> lack of cognitive dissonance making your thinking clearer? And is lack of B12 killing all your gains? So an excellent string of questions. Um, <laughs> Wait, were, were people a actually asking that? Yeah, it was, it was in, it was, it's a facetious list of questions here oh, okay, about going gotcha. vegetarian. Um, one of the things that's funny is I did run into like a major issue of cognitive dis. Or I, I ran into a moral conundrum. So my girlfriend's cat is uh, needed a switch in food, and we we're trying to figure out. Uh, they stopped selling her old food, and she's allergic to a lot of the common foods. And we're trying to figure out what kind of food to get for my girlfriend's cat. And uh, 
dude, they made me sad. <laughs> like there was like, she's like, should we get this food made of rabbits? And I'm like, dude, no, not, not the little rabbits. And then like, yeah, we, we went through this whole list of animals and finally settled on a salmon based food for the cat based on which animal do we feel less sad about, about eating? Yeah. Um, because you know, the cat is a lovely cat, but, uh, unfortunately an obligate carnivore yeah <laughs> you know? so the cat will be eating meat and so yeah we still buy these food products made of animals but fortunately we were able to avoid uh the bunny food that was that was a, a little bit over the line for yeah. me but uh anyway yeah so it's been good and it's not 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 that bad uh question here about creatine moving on from uh an alphabetty white is a username uh, would removing creatine before and or during a water cut be advisable? Uh, how big of a strength loss should I expect? And in what time frame, uh, assuming that I'm a responder to creatine? Um, so I would not bother removing creatine in the context of a water cut. Um, First of all, to do it, you'd have to do it ahead of time. So the washout period, some people say four weeks, some people say, you know, closer to six or eight weeks, depending on how confident you want to be. But we're talking about a month or two of going without creatine to get it fully washed out from your system. And so like when you're reviewing a study on creatine, uh, if there's a washout period, it better be at least four to eight weeks. Otherwise, there's going to be some residual uh elevations of creatine stored in muscle and other tissues. Um, so I don't know if it's really worth it to like, if you're someone who actually gets benefits from creatine and you're a responder, I'm not sure that you want to go, you know, two, maybe even three months without the creatine leading up to an event where I assume you're hoping to optimize your performance. And another thing to keep in mind is that you can still very much dehydrate yourself when you're on creatine. So the creatine will increase your kind of baseline total body water level, but that doesn't mean that you're going to be unable to then reduce body water. Like you can absolutely dehydrate yourself to your heart's content, despite the fact that you're on creatine. Uh, your heart may or may not be contented with it. Exactly. So but once once it's pumping <laughs> blood through your fucking arteries that looks like molasses yes um you, so, you can dehydrate to your heart's discontent regardless <laughs> yeah. of creatine supplementation and i will say my bias here is that i'm just generally not very fond of water cuts if i'm being honest um of course i understand there are certain uh there are certain situations where you accept the health related trade-offs uh for the performance related benefits I do think that there are many athletic endeavors where people think they're getting a performance benefit from their water cut, but they're actually harming their performance depending on the timing of the cut and the timing between weigh-in and actual competition. But that's probably a conversation for another day. But uh, no, I, I don't think there's much utility in removing creatine uh, before a water cut. Uh, depending on the situation, if I were coaching you, I'd probably maybe try to talk you out of the water cut, especially if it's a very aggressive or extreme one. But nonetheless, the creatine is not going to be a critically important factor there. Uh, another question here, and then I'll kick it over to you. Question here from Magic the Dude Chef. Um, some foods have a decent amount of protein by the numbers, but you know they have a very low quality protein such as collagen. 
when tracking macros, how should we account for this low quality protein? Um, you know, that's a good question. Um, and collagen is honestly a terrible protein. Uh, if you're looking at it from a muscle protein synthesis perspective, uh, most uh, quality scores for it are literally zero uh, because it has a complete and utter lack of tryptophan. So like if you were just going to look isolated, a dose of collagen for promoting muscle protein synthesis, it's a, a rubbish protein. However, um, within the context of a whole day of intake and a whole bunch of different protein sources, and in most cases, some very high quality protein sources that have an abundance of tryptophan, um, slipping in a little bit of low quality protein here and there uh, is not necessarily that bad, whether it's a little bit of collagen here and there, uh, some of the lower quality plant-based proteins. So like soy is a very high quality protein from plant, but you know, you start looking down the list at some of the lower quality ones and you start to really think like, I don't know, this amino acid profile is pretty weak, but overall I say my general inclination is to count it as protein. And just to make sure that your total daily protein intake is adequate, you, you know, relative to your goals and to make sure that you have a good mixture of proteins in your diet. So, uh, I don't necessarily see a problem with counting a, you know, fairly low quality protein toward your daily total, as long as it's not making up a huge proportion of, of your total daily intake. Um, you know, so for example, tying this back into the idea of vegetarian and vegan diets, you know, you can take two low to moderate quality proteins that have complementary amino acid profiles, put them together and end up in a really good spot in terms of muscle protein synthesis. So I, I don't like to promote the idea of really micromanaging amino acid profiles. But of course, looking at your diet in its totality, you want to make sure that you have enough protein and you want to make sure that you don't have glaring weaknesses with regards to any particular essential amino acids. So if you're getting, you know, 60% of your daily protein from collagen, that sucks. That, that's a bad plan, but I, I don't know if it makes sense to have the, this kind of dueling count going on throughout the day where you're counting this subtotal of high quality proteins and this sub uh, subtotal of low quality proteins and things like that. So I'd still count it toward your, your total daily protein, but I would encourage you to try to make sure that you either have a diet that is rich in high quality proteins or rich in proteins that are complementary in nature when it comes to their amino acid profile. I, I can tell you exactly. I mean, my, uh, experience with, with using collagen protein, yeah, basically exactly what you're describing. So I, um, I started using uh, uh, just like gelatin powder in my meal prep, maybe like two or three months ago. Um, so one of the things that happens to me when I'm in a calorie deficit is just like I get joint aches all the time. I don't know why, but like they say, like, ah, if you lose weight, your joints will feel better. I got to I got to say one of the reasons why, uh, especially when I'm training hard, I tend to want to be in a moderate to sometimes quite aggressive surplus is that shit makes my joints feel good. And like you take calories away and like my hips ache, my knees ache. Now that I fucking broke my arm earlier this year, my wrist and my elbow ache, those are new. Um, and so uh, I, I saw some of the, um, the research that's been published on collagen synthesis with like collagen or, or gelatin supplementation. 
uh, and just thought like, you know what? It can't, it can't hurt. It can't hurt. Like I'll give it a shot. Uh, just, just throw some gelatin powder in my meal prep. Uh, I, I mostly eat like rice based dishes, like rice and lean protein. Um, so like, yeah, I'll just throw some collagen in, make sure it dissolves, uh, might help if nothing else, uh, might improve the mouthfeel, like make it taste a little bit more like luscious and luxurious. Um, and so I just put like a hundred grams of gelatin powder in like in with the water, uh, when the rice is about to cook, uh, and subjectively one, it, it seems to have been helping my joints. They feel better. Don't know if the two are related, not an RCT. Don't necessarily take it as advice, but my personal experience, pretty positive. Um, second, in terms of just like how I account for it, it it's basically what you're describing. So uh, my most recent meal prep, which I did last night, big old batch of kanji, a uh, lot of pork um, and like 117 grams of collagen. And so the, the whole kit and caboodle has like 740 grams of protein in total. And each serving of it will probably give me about 55 grams of protein, give or take. Um, and of that, like three quarters of it probably is from the pork. And then there's enough rice that like a non-trivial amount of it is from the rice. Uh, a little bit from some mushrooms and then uh, about a seventh of the total protein in what I'm consuming comes from the collagen I added. So of those 55 grams of protein, probably like around 40 or slightly under is, is coming from animal protein. And from there I, I figure like, ah, I'm set for the meal. And then, uh, maybe some slightly lower quality, uh, plant proteins. Um, and then, you know, of, of the 55 grams, probably, eight of them are coming from the collagen and like, I don't know. It's probably not as, I think I'm consuming enough protein that having slightly lower, like 55 grams per meal is more than sufficient. And so if I replaced those seven, eight grams of, of gelatin with more pork or chicken or whatever, I don't know that I'd really get anything out of it. And uh, I mean, like you said, I just don't want to micromanage my shit. So um, with with the addition of that, like I kept my daily protein targets the same. So the amount of quote unquote high quality protein I'm eating per day has probably decreased by 12 grams maybe. Yeah. And like I'm fine with that. I subjectively, it doesn't really seem to, to be making a difference in terms of like muscle retention. Uh and then subjectively joints seem to feel pretty good. So I don't know. seems okay. Yeah. And I think a, another thing that contributes to this, um, cause I get this type of question a lot, something that contributes to it is I think a lot of people make, uh, dichotomies in their head about protein sources. They're either a high quality animal based, uh, protein source or a low quality plant-based protein source. And they kind of just look at a protein source and say it's either high quality or low quality. Should I count the low quality? But realistically, it's a continuous spectrum. And some of your animal sources for protein are not as high quality as your other animal sources. And there are some very high quality plant sources and some very low quality plant sources. And so what I kind of think about in my head is like you hold up this list of protein quality scores and say, draw me the line where it doesn't count anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
very, very hard to do that. It's our favorite dichotomizing continuous variables. Right. But it's, best. it's very hard to draw your line. And especially when you consider the fact that you take a low quality protein and a low quality protein with complementary profiles. And all of a sudden you're, you're looking pretty good. Yeah. So yeah, going source by source can be very difficult, but I do uh, encourage people to look at their diet in its entirety. And like Greg said, make sure that your collagen is not, you're not doing collagen instead of chicken, right. Yeah. Or instead of pork or whatever, whatever the meal was, it's uh, collagen along with, you know, some of your higher quality sources. The other thing I note as well is just uh, um, a practice that I've, heard from several people like engaging in recently is just the idea of you know when it comes to counting your your protein for the day kind of sticking with uh like research-based protein targets like shooting for 1.6 grams per kilo or, or whatever it is 1.6 1.8 um but then as far as counting your protein goes only counting the high quality protein sources so you know, I'm going to make sure that I'm getting 1.6, 1.8 grams per kilo of protein per day. Uh, but I'm only going to count like the eggs and chicken and milk, or if you're vegetarian, the soy, maybe the mycoprotein and, and everything else, just basically not counting it towards your protein targets for the day. A, a point that, that I always mention when I see that is the, um, like the protein, the research derived protein recommendations that exist exist in the context generally of mixed diets. Right. So, you know, if they're saying that like, ah, somewhere in the neighborhood of a gram per pound or like 1.8 grams per kilo, like somewhere in that general vicinity, uh, the research saying that like, ah, that's probably enough to maximize hypertrophy or muscle retention in a deficit and eh, maybe slightly higher for that, but whatever, like all of those targets are based on studies where people are eating mixed diets. Like in those studies, they're not exclusively counting high quality proteins. And so like, that's the context that those, uh, that those recommendations are derived from. And so if you're basing your targets on 1.8 grams per kilo of only high quality protein, there's probably nothing necessarily bad with that. But if you're doing that because your dietary targets are being informed by the research, your protein, if you want to make an apples to apples comparison between your diet and the research that you're basing it on, you are consuming higher protein levels uh, than, you know, is, is necessarily being recommended and that you are using as your targets. And, and again, uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with eating slightly higher levels of protein, but um, if you wanted to go about counting using that method, you could probably justify slightly lower protein targets just because some protein is going to come along for the ride and virtually everything you eat. So if that is just the way that you prefer to count, a slightly lower daily protein target, maybe if you're an omnivore, like <sighs> to 1.4, 1.5, grams per kilo would probably be more justifiable. Like if you are only counting the high quality protein, you probably don't need to shoot for quite 1.8 grams per kilo. J just because like that, that's not how the research was done <laughs> that those, right. uh, that those recommendations were derived from. And just for context, I, I wish I had the type of memory where I could give exact numbers, but, um, 
there is a nice paper I saw the other day that looked at, you know, in a typical diet in this region, what percentage of protein comes from plants and what percent comes from animal sources. It's very likely that when you look at the studies that we're getting protein recommendations from, like you said, the individuals are eating mixed diets with a mixture of higher and lower quality protein sources, probably like 40%, uh, depending on the region of that protein is coming from plants that, that tend to have lower quality scores. So like you said, I, I think a lot of times we assume, oh, I need to make sure I'm getting 1.6 grams per kilogram of the high quality stuff to match this literature. When in reality, it, it's very much not matching that literature. All right. So I think I've answered all the ones I'm going to answer because we are at about a hour 45, give or take here. But uh, the floor is yours to answer as many of your remaining questions as you'd like. I've just got two more. One should be pretty short. The other might be a little bit longer. So uh, starting with the short one from Gerald Scott, uh, he asks, uh, what are your personal and professional opinions on designated bouts of low intensity steady state cardio at a certain percentage of maximal heart rate versus step counts? Do you think there would be a significant difference that the low intensity steady state cardio would be superior for fat loss? And, and I think um, I think the best way to answer this question is probably practically rather than scientifically for a couple reasons. One, you know, there's there's a body of literature on step counts and there's a body of literature on cardio, but there aren't that many just like direct head to head comparisons of step count based interventions versus cardio interventions like there, there are some. But I don't know. I, I don't want to build an argument off of like three papers. Um and so I think the the best way to answer this question is is just practically. Um, and for me personally, I I, gen, I tend to favor step counts. Um, but I I think that it largely I, I think that it largely just depends on the needs and preferences of the individual. So the first thing you need to to consider is the question of feasibility. So. For example, if someone works a pretty sedentary job and maybe they're only getting in three, 4,000 steps per day, like they're quite sedentary, um, but their step counts are that low because they're really busy. Like they they have a sedentary job, but like they work a full-time job, a uh, lot of family responsibilities, a lot of stuff they need to do when they get home in the evening. And, you know, you prescribe to them like, ah, try to get 12,000 steps per day. Um you know, there may just not be room in their schedule for them to squirrel away an hour and a half worth of walks through through like various open chunks of time in their day like that. That may not exist. And so for them to comply with your recommendations, uh, they might have to make some pretty big sacrifices, maybe even like reduce how much they're sleeping, which might not be the best thing. Um, versus like for that individual, if you just prescribe them cardio, you said like, hey, do uh, 30 minutes of steady state cardio, um, you know, at, at whatever pace is manageable for you, like, you know, should be pretty challenging, but you shouldn't be dead at the end of it. Uh, and do that four days per week. That might be a, a much more feasible intervention. They could just get up in the morning, get it done, and then go about their otherwise busy life. So, you know, I, I don't particularly care in theory, which one of those would produce better results because, the, the cardio prescription is probably just going to fit in with their lifestyle better and, and be more feasible. So feasibility is something to consider. Um, 
Another thing to consider since this question was asked in the context of fat loss is what someone's hunger satiety response is to uh, like a step count based recommendation or a cardio based recommendation. One of the things that I think people uh, anticipate when it comes to exercise and, and appetite and satiety is that um, basically that there's kind of like a one-to-one compensatory relationship between calories burned in exercise and then how hungry you become. And that's not necessarily the case. So depending on the individual and the type of exercise they're doing and the context and a bunch of other shit, uh, the appetite response to a particular type of exercise or a particular way that you increase calorie expenditure can go a bunch of different directions. So um, like exercise can be orexigenic. It can make you hungrier and want to eat more, or it can be anorexigenic. It can uh, decrease hunger and, and just kind of like uh, w- without necessarily even thinking about it, reduce calorie intake. And can that, I uh, just reinforce your your concept of how variable it is? Yeah, go for um, it. Historically, I've always been like, oh, dude, cardio makes you so hungry, very bad. But in hindsight, I'd only tried doing cardio when I was like late in prep. <laughs> um, but in a different context, when I you know uh, ventured out onto the road to Athens, I've noticed that my appetite is actually a little bit lower mm-hmm. and that I, you know, there's research to indicate that within certain uh, circumstances, a little bit of aerobic activity can kind of recouple your satiety yeah. signals to your your energy needs. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, I feel like a dumbass because I never considered the fact that I'd only been doing cardio in one particular context. Um, and even within an individual, I've noticed those yeah. those. Uh, sources of variability. Well, yeah. And, and so that, that's another important consideration as well. Like, um, like baseline levels of activity. So you, you mentioned, uh, like coupling, uh, hunger responses with, with energy expenditure. And then, uh, we've talked about this on the podcast before, but in general, one of the reasons that having a sedentary lifestyle can promote weight gain is that when people are reasonably active, like, you know, we're not talking elite endurance athletes, but just you move around some, you have a not completely sedentary lifestyle. There are various compensatory mechanisms that tend to couple uh, energy intake with energy expenditure. Um, And there's kind of like a range where as you expend more calories, like your hunger tends to scale pretty much linearly with it. But then like, yeah, if you're like super sedentary, you can have elevated um, like hunger cues in excess of of the calories you're burning. And so it becomes uncoupled and you tend to gain weight over time. And so if you are very sedentary, uh, it's not incredibly uncommon for an increase in activity or exercise to decrease sensations of hunger or uh, to have really no effect. And so you're increasing caloric expenditure, but not really having much of an impact on hunger and satiety. So anyway, there's a lot of there's a lot of considerations. Another uh, major one is just kind of like how someone um, like perceives the exercise they're doing. So there, there's been a bit of research on this, where if someone uh, expends calories doing some form of exercise, and they view it as kind of like a chore and unpleasant and they don't like to do it. Uh, their compensatory eating afterwards uh, 
tends to be quite high versus if it's just like, oh, I, I like going for a jog. I went for a jog. It was fun. There doesn't seem to be that much compensatory, like excess food intake afterwards. Um, so yeah, it, it's not even just pure physiology. It's also a matter of, of how someone interacts with the exercise they're doing and, and how they perceive it. Uh, all of which is to say, um, like you can, you can generate kind of like, uh, average recommendations for different types of exercise and their, their impact on hunger and satiety. So, uh, something people will often mention is that a potential benefit of high intensity interval training is it does actually tend to blunt appetite and, and reduce hunger post-exercise. But you know, that, that is something that is true on average, but is also incredibly variable person to person. <laughs> so, um, yeah, when, when you're deciding, like, am I going to tell someone to do cardio or am I going to tell them to get in more steps? May not be a bad idea to try both and just just see how the person responds to it. Um, like, it's very plausible that they could do some cardio and say, man, I hated that and I'm going to treat myself with whatever. And, you know, they, they end up uh, with a net uh, caloric surplus in spite of the fact that they just expended more calories. Um or they could view it as like, oh, that was great. And now I feel like fresh and energized and ready for the day and like don't feel the need to compensate for that. Uh, and, and same thing could go with like a step count intervention. Like I, I personally find that that tends to blunt my appetite. Like if I'm getting more steps in, I just tend to find myself less hungry. But I also really like the walks I go on. Um, I just throw a podcast on, enjoy the nature and, you know. It's nice. I think it's good. It, it's to me a pleasant thing. Um, but if it's the type of thing where it was very challenging to work into my schedule and I just didn't like doing it, um, you know, I, I could see myself perceiving it as more of a chore and, you know, then like maybe wanting to treat myself with some food as a way to say like, good job for going on that walk, Greg. So, you know, the, it, it's going to vary a lot person to person. Um, and so, yeah. In general, I th I think that uh, recommending people up their step counts is, on average, more productive. Um, but I, I definitely don't think that it's what I would recommend for all people in all circumstances. So, you know, just like try it out and gather both objective and subjective feedback from your clients. Like, um, how is this making you feel? Do you feel energized afterwards? Do you feel wiped out? Uh, are you having an easier, harder time sticking with your diet following this form of exercise uh, and, and use that information to make your decision? So that was supposed to be the short one. So let's uh, <laughs> let's dive into the final question of the day. Uh, Nicole Bazemore, Justin Collins and Arabella Murray uh, all wanted um, our take, but they're going to get my take on uh, a recent study that was published um, and an NPR article about it. So the study in the NPR article will both be linked in the show notes. The title of the for the record, by the way, uh, I've already weighed in on this topic, but I keep all of my perspectives behind a paywall. So you got to subscribe to Mass if you want <laughs> my take on artificial sweeteners. All right. Uh, anyway, so the title of the study in question, uh, published, I think last month or in October. Um, was obesity and sex-related associations with differential effects of sucralose versus sucrose on appetite and reward processing, colon, a randomized control trial. And I got to say, 
most of the time when a when a study gets a lot of headlines and a lot of press, it tends to have a very uh, simple and audacious title. So kudos to these researchers for getting an NPR spot for this paper because that's a convoluted title. Um, but anyway, so uh, what this study did is there were three conditions. Um, so subjects consumed water, a sucralose sweetened beverage. Sucralose is the generic associated with the brand named Splenda uh, and a sucrose sweetened beverage. So sucrose is table sugar. Uh, and it was a crossover study. So all of the subjects completed the same testing after consuming water, after consuming a sucralose sweetened beverage, and after consuming a sucrose sweetened beverage with a washout period between each one. And uh, I'll note most of the outcomes in this study were related to brain imaging. And I'm not going to even touch on those because that's not even even within spitting distance of my area of expertise. Um, yeah, I don't know the first thing about fMRI. I understand in general what it's measuring, but uh, you know, I'm I'm not a I'm not a neurology expert. I can't claim to uh, be able to interpret those outcomes with any meaningful expertise. So I'm just gonna let them be. I uh, did one very MRI heavy study as a grad student, but would you even believe that I was not the MRI expert on the team? Interesting. Yeah. So unfortunately, I also cannot comment. Yes. But what I am good at is arithmetic and uh, knowing... Dude, you're you're as good Knowing at, when numbers are bigger or smaller. <laughs> I was going to say, you're as good at addition and subtraction as virtually any of my peers. I'll take it. Um so yeah, they uh, they they basically gave people these three beverages and and looked to see like how they impact different reward centers of the brain and whatnot. Uh, but also on a much more practical level, um, two hours after they consumed these beverages, uh, they consumed an ad libitum meal with kind of a a buffet style eating uh, setup. So, you know, people could get a bunch of different foods and just eat as much of them as they felt like they wanted to eat. Um, and they were looking at the impact following water, sucralose or sucrose ingestion on food intake. And so uh, they did find that on average, uh, comparing the sucrose and sucralose conditions, that subjects at the ad libitum meal did consume more calories following the sucralose condition than the sucrose condition. So that is consistent potentially with the idea that artificial sweeteners might increase food cravings or like the, the sweetness doesn't come with calories. And so it's not as satisfying as it could be. And then that might make people want to eat more at a subsequent meal. Uh, and they also found that there was a sex effect. So when they stratified it by sex, they found that uh, relative to the sucrose condition, the male subjects didn't eat more following the sucralose beverage, but the female subjects did. They ate about 100 calories on average more um, following a sucralose sweetened beverage than a sucrose sweetened beverage. So that's, again, seems consistent with the idea that Ah, maybe uh, maybe artificial sweeteners are no good. Maybe it increases appetite or food cravings or whatever. Uh, but as I mentioned, the devil is in the details here. And the piece of information that I haven't shared with you yet is the sucrose sweetened beverage contained about 300 calories. And so 
in total, combining the calories consumed in the beverage and the calories consumed in the subsequent meal, the male subjects consumed about 300 fewer calories uh, in the sucralose condition than the sucrose condition, and the female subjects consumed about 200 total fewer calories, uh, again, counting both the meal and the beverage. Um, so with that context, uh, in total, the sucralose condition did actually result in a relatively lower total energy intake. Um, compared to the sugar. Compared to the sugar. Um, and so, like, I don't know. To me, I, I care about that maybe more than uh, uh, brain imaging research. Like, you know, if, if people are given the opportunity to eat everything they want to eat, and they're still consuming overall fewer calories following artificial, artificially sweetened beverages than sugar-sweetened beverages, that still seems to suggest to me that um, at minimum, the artificial sweeteners are fine when it comes to uh, uh, promoting overall energy intake. And sounds like you're going to say something. Well, I was just going to say, you could argue that this is evidence of kind of the ideal use case for a artificially sweetened beverage mm -hmm. where it's like oh for the totality of this meal if you swap this beverage it will still taste nice but your total calories will be lower yeah so that's pretty good i agree uh and, and to be clear the beverage wasn't consumed with the meal it was consumed but two yeah. hours prior but yeah i i agree conceptually uh so anyway i don't find the results of this study to be particularly scary or <laughs> to suggest that the artificial sweeteners, you know, enhanced appetite or cravings to a degree that would likely be deleterious. Uh, and I'll note that that is also in keeping with a meta-analysis that was published last year by Laviata Molina and colleagues. Title was Effects of Non-Nutritive Sweeteners on Body Weight and BMI in Diverse Clinical Contexts, Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. That will also be linked in the show notes, uh, but it, it's straightforward. They just looked for all of the RCTs that ran for at least four weeks that compared a non-nutritive sweetener, which um, I tend to just call artificial sweeteners. Uh, not all of them are artificial. Sugar alcohols aren't artificial, but whatever. It's what people would often refer to as artificial sweeteners. Uh, so it compared uh, studies lasting at least four weeks, um, comparing non-nutritive sweeteners versus either sugar-sweetened beverages or water um, as, as a uh, control condition. And it found that uh, kind of in all of the studies pooled together, non-nutritive sweeteners led to uh, negative effects on body weight. And I mean that negative in a numeric sense. So uh, either less weight gain or greater weight loss. Then when they broke it down further, just for example, just looking at the studies, comparing it against sucrose versus studies comparing non-nutritive sweeteners against water, they found that the effect of water and non-nutritive sweeteners or, or not beverages sweetened with non-nutritive sweeteners they had similar effects on body weight. So uh, water did not have superior effects, uh, in other words, but neither did non-nutritive sweeteners. And then compared against sucrose, non-nutritive sweeteners did lead to a numerically negative impact on, on body weight and BMI. Um, and then they also looked at the type of dietary intervention. So 
in uh, restricted intervention. So like when people were put on a diet that was intentionally reduced calorie for the purpose of, of losing weight, um, it didn't really seem to matter what sort of beverages they consumed. Like non-nutritive sweeteners did not uh, enhance weight loss in those studies, but they also didn't have a negative impact in, on weight loss in those studies. But then in studies with uncontrolled diets, they did have a significant uh, numerically negative impact on body weight and BMI. So, you know, um, again, I, I care less about brain imaging than a meta-analysis that's actually looking at changes in body weight and BMI over time. And in that context, uh, non-nutritive sweeteners seem to be uh, neutral to positive if you're interpreting either greater weight loss or uh, less weight gain as, as a positive uh, effect. The one thing that I will note, uh, just as, as a caveat, and I wouldn't say potential cause for concern, but just kind of a, a thing to look out for potentially, um, is, you know, there are a bunch of non-nutritive sweeteners or, or artificial sweeteners out there. Um, so the, the study I started uh, talking about initially for this segment um, looked at sucralose, again, brand name there is Splenda. Uh, but most of the research in this area looks at aspartame. And then there are also various sugar alcohols. A um, couple of studies look at uh, saccharin. Yeah. And honestly, I don't even call saccharin an artificial sweetener. It's not sweet. Like, I don't care what people say. Saccharin's not sweet. It just tastes like shit. Uh, same <laughs> thing with stevia. Stevia is not an artificial sweetener. It's an artificial bitterer. Uh, like I, I've seen here. Okay. Here, here's I the, I think they call that one a non-artificial bitterer. Yeah, whatever. Stevia. I don't care. So th this is, um, the thing that I think I get the most heated about when it comes to like diet culture and people trying to make like healthy desserts and whatnot, like, cause there, there's the, the high protein dessert community and the people with, <laughs> undiagnosed orthorexia community is a circle, I believe. And so there's a lot of kind of like health halo stuff around like, oh, natural is good. Stevia, it's natural. It's not It's not like aspartame. It's not like sucralose. So like, yeah, make these little fucking protein balls and use three cups of stevia. And like, it's going to be sweet and it's going to be great. And then like, you know, people will be like, oh man, like, uh, it's not quite as good as the real thing, but I still like it. You're lying to yourselves. No one likes stevia. Stevia tastes terrible. Uh, if you want, I don't generally do plugs if I'm not getting paid. I'm not sponsored by Splenda, but honestly, <laughs> the next time you make one of those fucking recipes, sub out the stevia for Splenda or just like a store brand of sucralose. I promise you, it's going to taste so much better. Stevia is terrible. And uh, if you if you don't agree with me, you're lying to yourself. And I, I will not hear arguments to the contrary. Anyway, to getting back on topic. Uh, yeah, th there are a lot of sweeteners that kind of fall under the umbrella of non-nutritive sweeteners. And what I'll note is the meta-analysis I just talked about looking at weight and BMI. Um I don't, I don't have the numbers directly in front of me, but if memory serves, like 80% of the studies were aspartame studies. Like aspartame is far and away the most well-studied non-nutritive sweetener. And I believe that only one of the studies in that meta-analysis did look at sucralose. 
So it would be fallacious to necessarily assume that the impact of all non-nutritive sweeteners on hunger or appetite or weight or BMI are all identical. Um, I'm not arguing that. So it is possible that the impact of sucralose on weight and BMI over time might differ from the effects of aspartame. Um, but, you know, so, so that, that is a door that's still open. But the, uh, the, the study that the NPR article was about that, that uh, I was asked about on Facebook, it's not sufficient for me to become scared of sucralose or to think that it, it would have a negative impact on, uh, on weight over time. Yeah. And, and by the way, the same is true. A lot of times people ask about how uh, non-nutritive sweeteners impact the gut microbiome. That's another area of research where there are many studies on it. Uh, not a ton, but there are several. But again, it's very aspartame dominated. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we definitely need more research looking at some of the other popular non-nutritive sweeteners. But this study, um, and this is not... Um, to be critical of the original researchers because they had a very practical component to their study. Um, but one of the things that, that I get a kick out of is when you have conversations, usually on the internet, um, and someone will be using mechanistic data to make conclusions about an applied outcome when we absolutely definitely do have applied research on mm -hmm. the topic, you know, like, I saw a thread the other day where someone was like, oh, dude, carbs are so bad. And I was like, how do you know that? And they're like, look at this study from five decades ago when they infused insulin. <laughs> I'm like, dude, these people didn't even eat a carb. Yeah. What, like, what are you what are you going on about? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's the same kind of thing where like sometimes I'll, I'll look at these extrapolations of mechanisms that often tend to lean in the scary direction. And I'm like, dude, you know, we know what happens when, when people eat that, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, it's, uh, and, and that's not to say that mechanistic, uh, data is not informative or helpful or important, but like, if we have actually seen what humans do in a very specific context, and that's what your question is about, mm -hmm. it's okay to also use some of that data too. What, one of, uh, in, in instance of that, that I previously found very funny, and I don't say I don't say previously because I no longer find it funny, but I say previously because I don't see people making this exact claim anymore. But whatever, I'm going to put some people on blast in the past. <laughs> uh, so it used to be maybe like five or six years ago, people would use um, acute muscle protein synthesis research to make very firm arguments about training frequency. And I I personally did this a little bit as well. Um not to an extreme degree, but I'm, I'm slightly putting uh, a past version of myself on blast. So consider this uh, a slight contextual clarification uh, for me as well. But anyway, um, so yeah, you, you, look at, uh, you look at research looking at protein synthesis following resistance training in trained lifters. And oftentimes you, you will only see elevations in muscle protein synthesis uh, after a resistance training bout lasting 12 hours or 24 hours. And from that, I didn't make claims quite this extreme, but I, I did see this exact claim. Like, look, as far as training frequency goes, if you're only hitting a muscle once per week, 
you're building muscle one day per week and you're losing muscle six days per week. You will at best tread water, but there's really no way to build muscle with a training frequency of just once per week. It has to be at least two or three times per week. But honestly, every day is probably best because because <laughs> these elevations are like maybe 24 hours yeah. tops. And it's like, brother, there's there's a lot of research here. <laughs> like oh, a lot. I would say a at the time, probably a majority of the longitudinal resistance training studies used a per muscle training frequency of once per week. These days, I think the average is is closer to twice per week in the research. But back then, man, most of the research on resistance training, you were looking at per muscle frequencies of once per week. And it's like, they're growing, man. They're getting, yeah. they're getting bigger. Uh, so yeah, it, like extrapolating acute results to uh, long-term assumptions that are fully contradicted by an enormous amount of research. Uh, e even at the time when I was very much on the high frequency train, I was like, some of y'all need to cool your jets. Like you, yeah. you can't, you can't go that far with it. Yeah. All right. I think it's time to play us out. And again, this is one of those instances where I'm going to plug something and unfortunately they don't sponsor the show, but if this company ever sponsored the show, <laughs> You'd never see us again because we'd be rolling in it. Uh, huge shout out to Big Pharma in general and the good people at GlaxoSmithKline. Uh, people have been reaching out to me uh, lately after the podcast goes up and say like, Eric, listen, you sound like shit. Uh, you're not well. I worry about you and I wish the podcast was more enjoyable to listen to because your voice is terrible. And so basically, I'd been congested for a very long time. And I kind of convinced myself that that was just how the rest of my life was going to be. Um, and I actually took a medication. And would you even believe it worked? Uh, I used Flonase. That's not a, a medical recommendation, but I used it. And like, it has honestly changed my life. Uh, <laughs> dude, I used to have to sleep with my mouth wide open so I could breathe. I probably had like sleep apnea of a particular kind, just not at, like the actual reason for it, but I couldn't breathe at night. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, so basically uh, I took a medication that was supposed to do a particular thing. It did that exact thing. That's and I'm crazy. I'm blown away as as a stubborn old man that doesn't go to the doctor or use medical treatments. It kind of reminded me that medicine in some cases when used responsibly could actually work, which is pretty incredible. So uh, if you can hear the difference in my voice it's because modern medicine actually works so huge shout out to my dear friends in big pharma uh okay i think that does it for this particular episode as always uh thank you for listening and we will be back soon thank you for listening to the stronger by science podcast if you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. 
Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So, before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.